top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. Today, my guest is Dan Wallach of the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum and Baseball Library in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. So first of all, let's just get started. We want people visiting you and supporting what you're doing. So where are you located and what's sort of around where you are located that people might be visiting and they can make this a stop on their journey? We're in Greenville, South Carolina, and our museum is the house that Joe and Katie Jackson built in 1940. Uh, they moved in in 1941 and lived there till they each passed away. Joe in December of 1951 and Katie, his wife, in April of 59. In 2006, our uh, museum was moved, the, the building, uh, Joe and Katie's house, from the original location to right across the street from Floor Field, which is the Greenville Drive Minor League Stadium. They are an affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, and our museum is literally right across the street from that. So it's a pretty good uh, one-two punch. If you're in, in town catching a baseball game, you can hop across the street and come check out our museum before and after every game. We're, we're open. So when the Jacksons moved into this house, it was obviously a number of years after his playing days, a number of years after the big scandal. What was his life like at the time? Was he in a better place than maybe he would have been 10, 15 years earlier? Yeah, I think uh, Joe's post-Major League Baseball career has kind of been uh, inaccurately portrayed over the years in film and TV. He actually lived a really good life. Uh, After his Major League career ended, he barnstormed for a handful of years in Georgia, and then he and his wife operated a dry cleaning business called the Savannah Valet Service out of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, they had that uh, going really well. Uh, at least two locations that we know of, at least 20 employees working for them at its peak. We think in 1932, they were getting ready to open a third location. Uh, you got to remember, this is in the heart of the Great Depression. you know. So they were a, a thriving business even through uh, the rest of the country, not really doing so well. But in 1932, when they were getting ready to open that third location, Joe's mom got sick here in Greenville. So they sold everything down in Savannah and moved back up to take care of her. Uh, Originally, they opened a barbecue restaurant called Joe Jackson's Barbecue Cabin. That was open for about a year and a half. Uh, And then when Prohibition ended, they sold that and opened a liquor store that was called Joe Jackson's Liquor Store. And he had that from 1934 to 1950. So a thriving business. Uh, There's an interview late in Joe's life that he claimed he was making $100,000 a year at that liquor store. Uh, in today's money, that would be over a million dollars. So I'm not quite sure if that was an accurate representation of how much he was making. I know he was doing well. I'm not quite sure he was doing that well. But regardless, uh, they were they were very well off. Uh, built a beautiful brick home in 1940 here in Greenville. That's our museum now. And back then, most of the houses in this area were not brick. So the fact that they had a, a two-bedroom brick home for just the two of them, you know, never had any kids of their own. So uh, they were they were doing all right financially. And I, unfortunately, that's not a story that has been accurately portrayed over the years. And that's one of the things that we're intent on you know, educating people about when they come to our museum. I really think you are dispelling some misconceptions with just what you're telling me right now, because not only was he doing well financially, but also he was putting his name on these businesses. He was still a drawing point 
people wanted to be associated with him still, even after the scandal of 1919. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people who maybe have seen some of these movies, have read some of these books, wouldn't realize. You know, there's a famous story that a lot of people have heard about Ty Cobb visiting the liquor store uh, in the 1940s. It's a true story. It happened in 1947. Ty Cobb and Grantland Rice, a, a really famous sports writer of the day, were at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia, and they were getting ready to go hunting together after that tournament was over in North Carolina. And on their way up, uh, driving up to North Carolina, they remembered that they had a liquor store in Greenville. So they said, all right, let's 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 stop off and say hi. So they walk in, and Joe doesn't acknowledge them. And you know, Joe and Ty Cobb were – wouldn't necessarily say friends, but they were certainly friendly. They were, you know, rivals on the field for the duration of Joe's career, but they had great respect for each other. We've got a number of pictures of the two of them in our museum together. Uh, lots of quotes from Ty Cobb calling Joe the greatest natural hitter who ever lived. So they definitely knew who each other uh, were. And the fact that Joe didn't acknowledge, you know, Ty or Grantland Rice, who he assuredly knew uh, back then, was was kind of interesting. So Ty's walking around the liquor store, you know, looking for a bottle and Joe doesn't come over to help or anything. And finally, you know, Ty takes a bottle off the shelf and puts it on the counter and says, Joe, don't you recognize me? And Joe says, of course I recognize you, Ty. I just didn't think you'd want to recognize me anymore. Most of them don't. And most people take away from that story is, you know, they think that, well, Joe must have lived the rest of his years in shame and, and didn't want to be a part of the public eye and didn't want people to know who he was. And that's not at all how Joe's life played out. Here in Greenville, he was beloved. You know, him, he and Katie were players of the community. And the liquor store was a place where people wanted to hang out as a community gathering spot. You know, guys in their you know 30s, 40s, 50s and older knew it was shoeless Joe Jackson who ran that liquor store and they wanted to just go hang out and talk baseball with Joe and you know little kids didn't necessarily know why he was famous or exactly who he was but they understood that he was a former major leaguer and so they'd go hang out at the liquor store too and Joe wouldn't let him inside because they were too young but he'd pull a chair outside and they'd sit out front and, and talk baseball all day on Saturdays Katie would open the store and Joe would be down at the local ball fields teaching kids how to play and, and playing baseball with them. So they were very well loved and respected in the community. I think the, the point of that Ty Cobb story is that Joe wasn't exactly sure where he stood with people who were still associated with Major League Baseball. You know, Major League Baseball left him behind, uh, and, and that was where he was self-conscious. But for the people in the community who knew him before his career, because he's from Greenville, um, the people who knew him during his career, because all his family pretty much still lived in Greenville throughout his entire major league career. He'd come back here in the off season sometimes and still had family and friends from the area. So everybody who knew him, there was no doubt in their mind what type of person Joe Jackson was, and, and they loved him. Um, so I think, again, the way that Joe has been portrayed in the media over the years is un unfortunately not quite accurate. And that's one of the things that we like to dispel here at the museum is to really portray things accurately and and of course, the baseball side of things is a big part of our tour, but when you come to the museum, we don't sit here and talk about statistics. We don't tell you what his 1917 on-base percentage was or was 1919 OPS. You know, If you really care about those statistics, you know where to look them up. What we're here for is to tell you the stories about who he was as a person and, and how he interacted with his teammates and type of man that he was. Um, of course, we also tell a little bit about Greenville's history and with the textile leagues 
how Joe got to start playing baseball. That's really a, a lot of stories you can't really hear or read anywhere else. So that's something that we pride ourselves on too. What are some of the items that people are going to see when going through the museum? You mentioned some pictures that you have there. Do you have a lot of great pictures through his career and then even after his career? What will people see there? Yeah, one of our disadvantages as a museum is the fact that Joe's major league career ended in 1920. And that's right about the time when people started caring about wanting to keep game-used artifacts, game-worn jerseys, things like that. So unfortunately, the pieces from Joe's life and career that have survived all these years um, of that nature are either, you know, in private collections or in Cooperstown or in, you know, other other museums or archives. So we really don't have a, a ton of stuff like that. But the fact that our museum is Joe and Katie's house, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, we also have the original doors to Joe's liquor store. Uh, we've got a couple artifacts from the Jacksons. We've got Katie's hope chest. We've got a couple of dishes that Joe and Katie used from their China set that um, you know, they had all those years. So we do have a couple of things that are actually authentic, but uh, the photos in our museum is what really sets us apart. We worked with a team called Man Cave Pictures based out of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and they are incredible. Uh, if, if you don't follow them on social media, you should. They're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Man Cave Pictures and Man Cave Photos, just depending on the, the platform uh, is their username. But they repair and restore old black and white photos. And then when we want them to, they colorize them. And work that they do is just incredible. Uh, it's the most accurate colorization that you'll see. Any you know, sport photos, there's a lot of people who colorize old war photos, especially World War II. Not a lot of people who are doing sports photos and certainly nobody doing it as well as Man Cave. Uh, so our, basically our entire museum is decked out in Man Cave's work and it just makes it uh, such an incredible way to tell the story. It really brings Joe to life instead of just having these old black and white grainy pictures of a guy who's been dead for a hundred years, it seems like it's, you know, right there in front of you. Uh, like you're looking at a person who lived a life and uh, we're really out of the way the museum looks visually. Um, and that, that's all thanks to the guys at man cave. What do you think people should know about Joe Jackson and his playing career that has nothing to do with the 1919 world series? We can all look up his statistics like you mentioned earlier, but what are some of the things his contemporaries were saying about him? What are some of the things that you see in these restored photos that really bring him to life? Well, we've got some pictures of Joe with his contemporaries, you know, pictures of Joe with Ty Cobb and with Babe Ruth and Napoleon Lajeway and Wahoo Sam Crawford, the greats of the game back then, guys who still hold records to this day, they all said Joe was the best hitter who ever lived. You know, Babe Ruth said that he modeled his swing after Joe. Uh, 1910 and 1911, when Cy Young was ending his career, Joe was first starting his. They were teammates on Cleveland, and Cy Young said about Joe, if there's a ball that this Jackson can't hit, I haven't found it yet. If you look at Joe's statistics from 1911 through 1913, his first three full seasons in Major League Baseball, a lot of people consider that one of the best three-year stretches in the history of baseball by any player offensively ever. Um, look up the, the numbers. In 1911, it was his first full season, his rookie year. He batted 408 that year. It still is the all-time record for highest batting average ever by a rookie. Another record uh, that he has that most people don't know, because a lot of people do know about the, the rookie season record, he has the highest batting average ever for somebody in his final season. In 1920, 
he hit 382. <laughs> so, you know, the, the stuff that he did in between those two seasons, 1911 and 1920, uh, was pretty incredible. He's got the fourth highest batting average in the history of the sport. Uh, it used to be thought of as being the third highest. He's got a 356 average, but within the, you know, the last year, Major League Baseball said that they were going to also include the Negro League statistics, which is great. Uh, with that sent Joe from third to fourth because Oscar Charleston is now a second place all time. His average was 363. So the top four averages in history are Ty Cobb at number one, Oscar Charleston, number two, Rogers Hornsby, number three, and Joe at number four. So Again, when you look at where he ranks uh, statistically in some of these categories, even to this day, 100 years after he's out of the game, he's still right up at the top. Um, you know, Babe Ruth and, and I Cobb both routinely quoted as, as saying Joe had the greatest swing, the best natural hitter who ever lived. Cobb used to kind of be upset with Walter Johnson because Ty said that Walter Johnson would let up against Joe Jackson because how else could you explain that Joe Jackson had such a great batting average against one of the best pitchers who's ever lived? And Walter Johnson said, oh, it's quite the opposite. He said, I gave my best against Jackson, and then I'd go back up third base. That's <laughs> you know, When you got that kind of praise from the all-time greats of the game, there's really not much more that needs to be said about the guy. I mean, there's a reason why we're still saying his name 100 years later. And yeah, it's a tragedy that he was, you know, his career was cut short and he never made it to the Hall of Fame yet. Uh, we think he will one day. It just hasn't happened yet. But if he were just some also-ran, we wouldn't talk about him. Uh, it's the fact that he was so great is why we still care about him all these years later. And you mentioned his final season, that 1920 season, which a lot of people don't realize it didn't end right there with the 1919 World Series. They played an entire another season and they sort of had these rumors following them around for that season. So the fact that Joe hit that well in what must have been a very stressful time in his life, like gamblers were saying that they had to throw games or, you know, they were going to go to the league and he still put up those numbers. I mean, everybody knows that he put up those numbers in the 1919 World Series. So to do that under that stress of knowing that his career was in jeopardy is just awe-inspiring, really. A tidbit that I always like to say is, you know, during the 1919 World Series, Joe hit the only home run for either team. A lot of people know that, but what a lot of people don't understand or, or realize about that home run is that it was the last home run hit during the dead ball era. 1920 started the live ball era. So Joe's 1919 World Series home run was the last dead ball home run. Um, in 1920, he batted 382, like we talked about. With a week left to go in the season, that's when you know everything kind of became uncovered about the Black Sox scandal from the year before. At that point in the year, Joe had his career high in home runs in 1920, and he was leading the American League in triples and batting 382. So he had plenty of baseball left in him. Uh, he ended his career with just under 1,800 hits. He was 33 years old at the time, and a lot of people, you know, when you look at that today, they think, oh, well, he was probably close to the end of his career. Back then, that wasn't the case. You know, Ty Cobb played till he was 45, and Joe was on that trajectory too. So, you know, the way I look at it, Joe would have had five or six, maybe seven elite seasons left in him, and probably five or six more after that where he was a really good ball player. There's no doubt in my mind he would have been a 3,000-hit guy. He probably would have flirted with 4,000 by, by the time all was said and done if he would have kept up and, and stayed healthy. And obviously, as you mentioned, his home run in the World Series being the last one of the dead ball era, 
he probably would have put up a lot more power numbers than he has right now because people think that it was just Babe Ruth and all of a sudden people started hitting home runs, but it was a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I'm not sure if he would have completely changed his swing to accommodate the live ball. Um, You know, I I say he had his career high in 1920 in home runs, and that is true, but his career high was 12. So it's not like he was hitting 40 or 50 home runs. I mean, he ended his entire career with 54 home runs. So, um, you know, the thing to really, you know, speculate on is when you look at Ty Cobb's career batting average and Rogers Hornsby's the guys who played before and after the dead ball era ended their career batting averages all skyrocketed once the live ball era started and again Joe you know his his career batting average was 356 in 1920 he batted 382 so you know 26 points higher that's a significant increase on your career average who knows how much higher his career average would have gone if he were able to finish out his career. Would he have possibly overtaken Rogers Hornsby, who's only two points higher than him? You know, Joe's 356, Hornsby's 358. Would he have gone as high as Ty Cobb, 366, 367, depending on which stat book you look at? I mean, there's no telling, but what we do know is that his career was, you know, unfairly cut short and we're grateful for the nine full seasons and parts of four others that we got from him, but it's a great what if, uh, what would have happened and I think baseball lost out too because the White Sox were a dynasty. You know, Charles Comiskey is thought of as this cheapskate owner because of the way he's been portrayed in media all these years. That's not quite the case. Uh, he had the second highest payroll in all of baseball in 1919. His team went to and won the World Series in 1917. 1918 wasn't a full season because, you know, World War I was going on. So a lot of teams didn't have their full roster. Uh, they did play a World Series that year, but it was about a month and a half earlier than it normally would have been. So, Again, uh, 1918 doesn't really count to, in a lot of people's eyes. You know, Joe only played 17 games that season and then went to Wilmington, Delaware all year and painted ships for the Navy. But 1919, the team's back together. They go to the World Series again and lose on purpose. 1920, with a week left to play when the team was suspended for the rest of the year, they were a half game back from going to their third World Series in four years. So it was going to be in you know, the 1920s. The Chicago White Sox against the New York Yankees year after year after year if those two teams would have stayed together. And unfortunately, the White Sox uh, lost most of their roster to the scandal. But, you know, Major League Baseball lost out on a great rivalry uh, that decade. And, and who knows the numbers that these guys would have put up. So you had mentioned thinking that Joe Jackson will eventually make it into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And of course, none of us really know if that is the case. But what are some of the things that are making you think that? Well, two years ago for the 100th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, Major League Baseball was starting to get some pressure uh, from the public to say, you know, look, Joe Jackson was banned for life, not for eternity. And a lot of people never really considered that nuance. Joe's life ended in December of 1951. And again, you know, 100 years after the scandal was over, the public started putting pressure on baseball to say, look, the guy's been, you know, out of baseball for 100 years. He's been dead for 70 Hasn't he paid his price? Hasn't he served his sentence? And Major League Baseball, for the first time, came out and said, the whole point of baseball's ineligible list is to keep somebody from playing in or working in Major League Baseball. And once you pass away, you can't do either of those things. So as far as they're concerned, the whole, um, uh, as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, once somebody passes away, they're no longer on baseball's ineligible list. So if they were to 
put Joe on a ballot, even though he, you know, he is eligible at this point, theoretically, know that if they put Joe on a ballot, they're going to have to put Pete on a ballot. And they're just not ready to do that while he's alive because Pete is still banned for life. So we think probably what is going to end up happening is when Pete passes, next time each of them are available, uh, you know, their eras are uh, up for election, that they will probably each go on a ballot. And then it will be up to the voters to decide if they get voted in, but at least they'll be on a ballot and, and we'll be able to make that choice. Uh, but unfortunately, that's probably just not going to happen anytime soon, but it will happen eventually. And you just mentioned being across the street from the ballpark, such a great location for your museum. What's the atmosphere like at that ballpark? If somebody wants to make a trip down to South Carolina, sort of have this baseball vacation, see your museum, see a game at the ballpark, what's that atmosphere? It's great. Uh, I'm from Chicago originally. I'm a White Sox fan, so I promise I'm not biased by the Red Sox aura. Uh, it is a legitimately cool minor league stadium. It's built like a mini Fenway Park, so they've got a green monster in left. You can sit on top of it. In 2017, the Greenville Drive were voted as the number one minor league franchise at any level for any affiliate. So it's a legitimately well-run team with a great stadium, very family-friendly, always lots of people at these games. Uh, you know, no minor league games happen on Mondays, but even the Tuesday and Wednesday games, which you would not expect to be well-attended, are well-attended. Uh, you know, Dollar drink nights on Thursdays gets the crowd out there. Friday night, always, always a, a big crowd. Fireworks after the games on Fridays. And then Saturdays and Sundays, of course, if the weather's nice, it's packed. So it's a great atmosphere. Drive have had some incredible players come up through the, the system, through Greenville here. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, affiliate, um, Uki Betts, Xander Bogarts. On Lester was in Greenville uh, for a while. Anthony Rizzo came up this way. Yohan Moncada, you know, guys that obviously were, were traded to other franchises but came up through the Greenville Drive. So you never know who you're going to see turn into baseball's next superstar, but they've had some people come through town here. Dan, one of the reasons that we started the Irish Baseball Podcast is to talk to people who have a passion about the game and a passion about the game's history, and you certainly are one of them. This was such an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, if you guys are interested in baseball history, you guys can check out my podcast. It's called My Baseball History. Uh, so we'd love to see you at the museum someday. You can check out our website. It's shoelessjoejackson.org. You can become a member, help support us. We're a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, so we exist on donations and gift shop sales, whether they're online or in person. So check us out and, and help us stay open. That was Dan Wallach of the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum and Baseball Library in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 43 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. In our next episode, I'll be talking about my pilgrimage back in June on Ireland's National Famine Way to raise money and awareness in the fight against domestic violence. Until then, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.